And you know God is holy. The Bible tells you so. Hallelujah. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to search out truth, Lord. We've read in the scriptures that Christ considered the scriptures unbreakable, immutable. And we want to study them, Father, and have that same confidence that we might follow him. Bless our little study to that end, Father, and through all these means may we grow in Christ and in thy praise and service. Amen. Amen. Uh, let's see here. Last time we, we got our introduction, we looked at... Um, why the subject's in, important, that uh, the church needs to be united about what the Bible is, what it says, and what it means. Um, not everybody, funny, one Lord, one faith, you know, one baptism. It doesn't say one set of holy scriptures in that passage, but Paul does write to Timothy. Uh, remember that of a child thou hast known one of the various versions of the scriptures. <laughs> Is that right? The holy scriptures. Um, there weren't several. Now, it's true that the, I mean, the, the Greek world had the one version, the, the Septuagint. And the rabbis in Israel would write what are called targums, which is basically a rabbinical paraphrase. And they quite, play quite, quite fast and loose. The rabbis, are, um, that, that's what the Talmud is about. Now, so the Talmud is two things, and I forget which is the, the um, as the Gemara and uh, oh dear, not the Midrash, I think. Yeah, Midrash and the Gemara. One is and the one is believed to be um, the oral Torah, right? So God gave the written word to Moses and the oral, and and the oral Torah that the Jews supposedly handed down from generation to generation from the time of Moses was proof that they had the word of God. Of course, it's not true. They, uh, I mean, they just made it up, right? And then they wrote it down about 3rd or 4th century B.C. They have the Jerusalem Talmud and the, and the Samaritan, the Babylonian Talmud, sorry, and the Samaritan. Um, and they, they're quite clever. So you have the Talmud's a commentary on the Torah. And then the Gemara, I think, is a, is a commentary on the commentary. So it's in the margin. So. And they consider it binding. The, the Catholic Church is like that. They have a tradition, which is binding, as binding as the Scriptures. And they make things up. They fill in gaps. Um, 
They explained, for example, how it was that Jacob didn't know it was Leah. Uh, um, but I won't tell you that now. You can ask me over coffee or something. So um, the Targums would be quite interesting, how they, they would interpret quite widely uh, or quite um, creatively various passages. So it's paraphrase, um, more, more paraphrase than the Living Bible. But they just had the one, one scriptures in the temple, right? So the, um, the Holy Scriptures, which they would all agree on, that was it. And so you had the, Jew, the Hebrew Scriptures in the temple, and then you had the Greek Septuagint for the Diaspora. And, and every church had the same version. You know that, right? All the believers in every New Testament church had the same version of the Bible that they worked with. You, you knew that, right? because um, they just had the one for the church, a bit like China today. Uh, the scriptures were read. Synagogues were like that, right? The Lord stood up for to read. No one had their own copy. No one was like, oh, mine puts it a little differently. Everyone was listening to the word. And that's important for a congregation. Uh, two things. You want to have the scriptures. You're all together on it. And um, uh, you want to uh, uphold their authority. So you're all on the same same page, quite literally. What you don't want is a situation like what the Catholic Church had, where the scriptures were for the elite. And then in Latin, when Latin was in disuse, right? So the common people didn't have the word. Um, you, want, you want all believers to have access to the word of God, and uh, you're all prophets, Right? The testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. I remember years ago we were in an evangelical church. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, you remember us being in the church but this specific episode. And um, uh, this particular denomination, they were at a place. See, political pressure, right? The, wor- the church is following the world. We're supposed to be a light to the world, not followers of it. And so women in ministry, women in leadership was a thing, and it kept coming up every year at the annual denominational conference. We weren't members. I didn't believe in formal church membership and certainly not in a denomination. I believe that being a member of the body of Christ made you a member of his church, and you were a member of the local church to which you gathered. And I couldn't, in good conscience, sign up for some of the things that would go with denominationalism and being a government-approved charity and all of those things. Um, so, you know, I couldn't vote and all of that, which is fine. And I couldn't, uh, couldn't hold various offices, but they, they would have me to teach. And, uh, but every year it came up, women in ministry. And what the denomination did is they... they um, handle it politically. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Don't make a hard position based on truth, but handle it politically. That's a bit of sarcasm, by the way. And uh, so what they decided to do was whether or not you would ordain women elders would be kicked down to each local congregation to decide for themselves based on a two-thirds majority vote. See? It's a biblical approach, right? Uh, 
So I'm not telling you the denomination because my heart isn't to slag anybody. And so it was discussed at the congregation where we were attending. You know which one it was. Yes, you remember it? And they were talking about it and someone raised a scripture and another brother, oh actually it was a pastor, who, yeah, yeah, the, in the Greek it's this and he looks at brother, yep, and they, they, pull, they pull out the Greek word and what that does is it kind of just sidelines 90% of everybody. Right? Means you can't discuss, you don't know. Oh, it's different in the Greek. So you've got two problems now. Wonder what else I've got wrong. And two, you just can't really comment. You become a dependent. You can't really have anything confident from God where you can say, Thus saith the Lord. Because the Greek could always rip the rug out from under you. You see? And that is an unbiblical approach. Where do you ever see Christ or the apostles doing that? That's the thing. So we want to look at what the scripture says about the scriptures, right? Um, and have a biblical approach to the scriptures. Uh, in the end, I don't remember what, what they decided. Um, I don't know where it's at today. Uh, but... That was uh, disappointing. I observed these things, and I never wanted to be a part of that. Last time we looked at um, the Bible teaches us about God and man, sin and salvation, holiness, sanctification, the end of all things, a new heaven and a new earth. That's where we go. We go to the Bible to understand all these things, and surely we go to the Bible to know what the Bible is and what it says about itself. Um, so we'll, we'll look at those things. Uh, <laughs> this notion, I, I remember it well. And listen, let, let's, let's be clear. Uh, I, 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 I mark views but not people. That's different. You ever believed anything silly or thought anything silly or said anything silly? I have. And I'll say, oh wow, that was silly in retrospect. But I don't think you're silly. I don't think brethren who believe these things are silly. But we're all vulnerable to believing silly things. And if something is silly or ridiculous, and I don't mind ridiculing it, I don't want to give respect to an idea that is nonsense. Um, even if fine people who are intelligent believe them, right? So here is standard orthodox. You can correct me. Like you, you went to Bible college, right? You went to the factory on this. Five years, right, brother? Four. Oh, should have gone two more, and then you could have been a fud or a thud, right? Um, you know, you'll hear this bold statement, I believe in the uh, inspired, you know, the scriptures are inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God in the originals, and that they are the, did you catch that little thing I slid in there? They are the sole rule of faith and practice in the originals. You see that? You slide that in there. You didn't catch that? I remember a wonderful 
Christian pastor saying that in his preaching with conviction, you know, in the originals. And I sat there, of course, I was really delving into the subject at that time. And I thought, I wonder how many people just caught what he said and the significance of it. Because the originals are nowhere on the planet accessible to any living human being. Which basically means all of that's useless. Because everything else is subject to human error. Um, there is a theory of creation that I believe the deists hold. Right? Remember the difference between a deist and a theist? Deist believe there is something. There is a creator, God, that cannot be known. And a theist believes the ist. You can actually know the creator, God. And um, he's an absent watchmaker. He wound up the universe like a watch and set it in motion and went off to do other things. Right? He's an absent watchmaker. And that is what most Christians believe God did with the scriptures. He inspired them. And then, over to you boys. Do your best. Because that's all you get. I'm inspiring it once. And if you mess it up, it's messed up. I won't say that, but that are the, those are the implications, right? In the originals. The originals are lost. But thanks to the science of textual criticism, we are restoring. That's what is believed. And uh, that is inconsistent with God. And that's not what the Lord Jesus and the apostles believed. So let's, let's look at it. Uh, let's look at how the Lord and the apostles approach Scripture. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. We're kind of reviewing and then pressing on here. Yeah. Um, I think we looked at these last time, right? Jesus answered and said to them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Um, and he derives the resurrection from God uh, speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And that teaches us a bit about how they derive doctrine. Remember? Uh, if the Lord got the resurrection from uh, God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and therefore he's the God of the living, and therefore there's a resurrection. You see how deductions are a method of doctrine. The Lord Jesus didn't go to Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth and shall stand at the latter day upon the earth and though worms eat my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That would be a good scripture for the resurrection or um, the angel saying to Daniel, go thy way, thou shalt stand in thy lot at the latter days. See, those are two really easy baby food, pablum, clear text on the resurrection. But the Lord Jesus, and you know, it's reasonable to suppose because the Sadducees only accepted the Torah as inspired and rejected the other scriptures. But regardless, the Lord said, as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? Notice how he considered the holy scriptures. God speaking to you. Brethren, we must think about these things and the implications are powerful. Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? 
When the Holy Scriptures were read in the synagogues, when they studied the Scriptures as teachers, God was speaking to them. And when you read your Bible, God is speaking to you. And the Apostle warns us, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. He makes commandment. But the Scriptures, the Lord Jesus, as far as he was concerned, are God speaking to you. Um, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. There's the deduction. And since they were dead now, they must be resurrected. There's your doctrine of the resurrection. This is not a one-off. Paul, in writing to the Hebrews, um, said similar things about Abraham. Paul said that Abraham concluded that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. It doesn't say that anywhere in the text in Genesis. So we need to think. Now we need to think soundly and accurately. We can't just make stuff up. But there are implications. And the implications of Scripture are doctrine. That's clear. This is how the Lord did it. Let's let's, uh, look at Luke chapter 6. Verses 1 to 5. And we'll get on into new material. Verse 3, right? Have you not read so much as this, what David did when himself was unhungered, and they which were with him? How he went into the house of God, and did take and eat the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone... He said to them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So, again, deductions. David was a picture of Messiah. David was above the law. Therefore, Messiah is above the law. David ate the the bread that only the priests may eat. And he gave it to his disciples. Therefore, Messiah can do as he will on the Sabbath, and so can his disciples. That's deduction. Now, we can't just make it up. We have to be careful. But the Lord did it, as did the apostles. And um, Galatians uh, talks about uh, allegory, or allegory, depending on how you like to pronounce it, which syllable. Chapter 3, verse 16. Now to Abram and to his seed. Right? We looked at the difference between seed and seeds. Saith not to seeds as of many, but as of one, to thy seed, which is Christ. And in chapter 4, so even one letter, singular versus plural. Chapter 4, 21 to 31. And he talks about the allegory of the free woman and the, and, um, the bond woman, right? So you've got the flesh and the, the one by promise. And promise represents the spirit. And Jerusalem, which is above, is the free. And Jerusalem... Below is in bondage and so on. So here you have Hagar, the bondmaid, Egyptian bondmaid, representing the bondage of earthly Jerusalem. So that's quite a transfer. And so it is no stretch at all to see the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua as a picture of the... um, You can look at it several. It has several applications but the possession of life in the Spirit by the Christian. 
right? If Jesus had given them rest, that's the Greek for Joshua. Yehoshua. Joshua from Hebrew into English and Jesus from Greek into English. But it's the same name. And uh, that wasn't the rest. It was a picture of it, right? Moses could only bring you up to look in. That was the the thing of scripture. You can't inherit the promised land through the law. You can only see the beauty of it. You can only see love thy neighbor as thyself and, and, and a purity of heart. But the, just the human self-effort keep, could never bring you into it. You could only see what it was supposed to be. Um, but through baptism into the death of the Lord Jesus and raised to walk in newness of life, you can actually enter in and possess the fullness of the love of God. So those were some examples, and we can perceive how to read the Word of God. Now with that, we're going to look at what the Word of God says about itself, what the Bible says about itself. Right? Um, Threefold issues concerning the Scripture. Script, right? Written. The very definition of Scripture is the written Word of God. Uh, Three issues. Remember what the three issues are in sequence that we need to look at? Uh, keyword, um, uh, I'll give you one hint. All three words end with shun, right? Uh, either T-I-O-N or S-I-O-N. That's the first clue. The first one begins with an I. Inspiration. That's the first giving. All scripture is ins- given by inspiration of God. It's inspired, it's breathed. And then, so once we've got that, the originals, now the next thing is, auto mechanic knows this one, the transmission, right? It's the, you transmit from one generation to the next, you copy it out. So we have the inspiration, the word of God comes down from heaven, the holy men of God spake as they're moved by the Holy Ghost, their emanuensis, their, their, their secretaries write it down. And then the copyists, Copy it and distribute it. So you have inspiration, first giving, transmission is copying. And then, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So what do we have now? We have with these Hebrew scriptures. What do we need to do with them? Translation, right? So inspiration, first giving, transmission, copying it and distributing it. And translation is sending it into other languages. Those are the three issues with scripture. Now, what does the Bible say about those three issues? See? It would make sense for the scriptures to address them because those are the three issues. The original autographs were given by inspiration, but copies were made. What does the Bible say about the validity, the authenticity, the authority of copies? It's transmission. And then, what about translation? So, Orthodox Christian belief. You know, orthodox is, right? It's, it's the standard. It's what's normal. And then heterodox is abnormal, right? You're out there. You're breaking. Orthodox is what everybody that's approved believes. And heterodox is you're kind of out there. Another one of these things. A couple of weeks ago, one of them got tangled up in my beard and kept wiggling around. And my wife smushed it on my face. She didn't smack me. She just gently, you know. Um, heterodox is you're kind of out there. On, your, on some island alone. So Orthodox Christianity will say that inspiration only applies to the original autographs. 
And then after that, copies and translation is just people doing their own best efforts and they could be messed up. And my question is, oh, well, what does the Word of God have to say about that? Is that reasonable? What does the Word of God have to say? No, isn't it amazing? We just assume that this is some law of God. That inspiration only applied to the original autographs and a translation can't be inspired. And I'm just thinking, well, who says? Because just off the top of my head, it seems to me that the Lord Jesus treated those copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies as if they were the very word of God. And in fact, so did the apostles. So right there, you have a complete difference between, well, you know, the Jewish systems. But I don't care what you have to say about that. I just want to see what the Lord and the apostles, what their approach was. And follow that. Uh, And look at all of those things. So, and this is important. Um, (laughs) These things are quoted as if they are immutable, inspired laws of God. But they're really just ideas that men have decided are true. Based on what? Only the original autographs are inspired. Copies are not inspired. And I would just, I would want to talk to one of these scholars and say, on what basis can you make that statement? Where does the Holy Scriptures advance that idea? And I'm thinking this would be the answer I would get. Like a deer in the headlights look. Be like, well, everybody knows that. But where do the Scriptures advance that idea? And they don't. And that's the thing. So right out of the gate we have a problem. This is orthodox belief. And it is not based at all on the actual content of scripture. So this is a problem. Uh, I would submit that any doctrine of the scriptures must be consistent with what the scriptures say. And with the revealed nature of God. I want to ask you, is God an absent watchmaker? Did he just set his universe in motion and go off to do other hobbies? Does God intervene? Was David wrong when he said, You knit me together in my mother's womb? Was God there? He sees the sparrow fall. And if he is that concerned about the sparrow, He's not more concerned about the text of his scriptures. When the reading of his scriptures are him speaking to you, would it not be the most reasonable conclusion that he was involved in the process of getting it to you? Wouldn't that be the most reasonable thought? So, uh, let's... uh, Did he give them once and abandon them? Or did he intervene as needed? So, uh, can you think of an example where God intervened in the natural order of creation and did something different from just the natural laws he set in motion? Any, anything? Oh, so Joshua. Joshua told the son, just stay there. Now, that is a mind-boggling thing to contemplate, but... 
I mean, if he could make the universe, he could just stop it, you know, like a child with a train track set, you know, is moving around and just like, stop the train. You know? I mean, it would make sense, but it's still mind-boggling to contemplate. I mean, a physicist would just, his brain would just spin on, when he's thinking about all of the laws of physics involved in that act. So I don't know how God did it, whether he just stopped the whole universe and like you've got all kinds of laws that he's upholding supernaturally or if he simply had some refraction of the light. I don't know and it doesn't matter to me. He could do it all any way he likes. That's an amazing one. Any others? What's that? Waters of Jordan. Yeah, and before that? The Red Sea. Water from the rock, you know? He's there. And when he, so he's got it according to the laws he has set in motion. Um, supposedly, I say supposedly, why? Because I think, think the deeper they, the physicists get, the more they realize it's almost like everything works by magic. I mean, no, it's like, how is this working? I think that's, as they dig and dig, you know, you get atoms and so on. How, how is it all? And it boils down to, it may well be that the entire universe persists because of a conscious um, decision by God. All of these laws don't function apart from his continual infusion of power into the created order. That's very possible. Um, so, yeah, all, all very interesting. Regardless, as needed, God steps in and tweaks just to make sure everything goes according to his intent in the material world, right? Miracles, saving of lives, whether the uh, prison doors opening to let Peter out or the angel of the Lord deciding, Herod, your time's done. Um, mostly things progress as if automatically, but God intervenes as needed. And I would submit that the transmission and translation of his scriptures, it would be most reasonable that God would at least do that for the scriptures. Be the most consistent with his nature. Just as a starting point before we even look. Um, I think we looked last time at, and this is where we stopped, I think, uh, in Genesis with Adam, right? So a bit of review. Adam and Eve. Isn't this where we stopped last time? Where uh, Adam, so God commanded Adam. And uh, in chapter 2, Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And so on. So what's clear is that before he created Eve, God commanded the man. Eve was not present. Right? Chapter 3, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. 
And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, and then the serpent went on. Ye sh- neither shall ye touch it. Now, I remember as a young man, and I just was just absorbing from these uh, teachers, reading a writing, I believe, by Watchman Nee. And he was criticizing the woman about how presumptuous she was, adding to the word of God. Because they were supposed to dress it and till it, and that included the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I would have to respectfully, at my ripe old age now, right brother? I would have to respectfully disagree with Watchman Nee on that. Sin had not yet entered into the world. This was a woman without sin. And I would rather believe that um, Adam had told her, don't you touch it. It would seem to me that would be the most likely explanation. Not that she just made it up on the spot or that she was loopy, you know, just a bit gapped out. Oh yeah, what did he say? And made stuff up. Remember, um, some of you, you know, we have business owners here. God made the woman as a help, right? Which means he made her intelligent. Anybody had an unintelligent helper? How'd that work out? Not good, is it? If God's giving you a helper, he's giving you someone intelligent. So she would be very intelligent. He's very intelligent. He's named all the animals in a day. And so... Um, it would seem clear to me that Adam, as the first prophet, repeated to her the commandment of God and told her, and don't you touch it. Just stay away from it. Um, It would not surprise me, although I have not searched it out, if this is where the Jews get their concept of building a fence around the law. So, the law, for example, says, Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. And I believe it has something to do with idolatry, but you're, you're going to eat a, a kid. You know, that's the goat version of a lamb. And you're not to seethe it in its mother's milk. That would be indecent. There's all kinds of problems with that. Um, so, the Jews, to make sure you never by mistake break that law, say you may not eat any dairy product with any meat product. Not even a cheeseburger called building a fence around the law. By, by taking this extra precaution, you make sure you don't accidentally transgress. And it seems clear that this is the kind of thing that Adam did here. Don't touch that tree. God has said not to eat of it. You don't even touch it. And Adam's command to her was taken as the very word of God. Look, she says, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. So, inspiration was the first giving of the word of God. And it was given to Adam, direct by God. Transmission was what Adam told Eve. Are you following this? Seeing how that works? Right here, we have an example of inspiration and transmission. And you either believe that they botched it, or that... In transmission, it doesn't have to be identical to what was first given for it to be the word of God. 
And further, this was spoken. And then by revelation, Moses wrote it a thousand-ish or more years later, over a thousand years later. So now, I mean, we didn't even talk about redaction, right? You know that fancy word, redaction. It's just the writing down of something. It has two common meanings. One is the writing down of something after the fact. The other is what the government usually does with documents. They don't want you to find out stuff. They block it out, and that's called redacting. They just remove stuff. So it's the first definition that we, uh, we use. It's written down later. So you have inspiration and then transmission. Right here, the text, and you can see this if you don't accept that. You can see it with the Ten Commandments in Exodus, written by Moses, and the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Deut is the second giving. Deut is the Latin, I think, for two. De Certainly French, Deuteronomy. It's the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is, is version 2. Law 2.0, right, is Deuteronomy. And the Ten Commandments vary in the wording. So right there in the scriptures themselves, the original autographs show that transmission allows for variation. And it's inspired. Right? So remember, we're testing this idea that transmission is not inspired. Right here, we see that um, Adam as a prophet added, and you'll see that with Jeremiah as well. <clears throat> so, uh, let's look at a few lessons. Right? The word was verbal, not written. The commandment was clear. The devil changed it subtly, shifting the emphasis and giving a slightly different rendering of the words. So that's important. Right, Satan said, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Let's compare the devil's version with God's. Chapter 2, 16. God commanded the man, saying, Here's God's commandment. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Here's the devil's version. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So God's version, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. From the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. The devil comes with a different rendering. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree. Now, technically it's correct. There's one you may not eat of. But the devil was spinning this Subtly. The wording does matter. Different renderings are not okay. Satan is involved in making subtle changes to the expression of the text. Even if it at a glance seems to mean the same thing. God's interested in his word. <clears throat> and so is the devil. Right out of the gate... You had the inspired word of God and you had a satanic version that was a little bit different. Right in the garden. Is, is that not plain in the text? Do you, do you know that one of the rules of textual criticism, and textual criticism is not looking at a text and saying that's a bad text, I criticize you. It's the critical thinking analyzing the text of scripture. So when you have different manuscripts, and they do have differences. They have differences in spelling, as if that's a really big deal. And so on. And there are fakes. There are, are manuscripts that have been modified. 
But one of the rules of textual criticism, so you've got, you know, P65 or whatever. I think that's a cursive, right? Uh, a minuscule on the small text, and then you have the majuscules or the uncials, one-inch block capital letters, whole text like that. Each letter's that size, all caps, no space, no punctuation, just one glorious long string. Try reading that. Um, <clears throat> but you, when you come to a manuscript, you may not allow for the possibility that the Spirit of God helped the scribe or the Spirit of Satan deceived the scribe. For the purposes of writing a manuscript of the Holy Scriptures, neither God nor the devil intervened in the copying out of that text. That is one of the laws of textual criticism to which every respectable and respected Bible scholar must submit when he analyzes the text. I ask you, is that a biblical concept? No. No. In most human endeavors, either the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Satan are busy at work, sometimes both. And what could be more consequential than the transmission of the Word of God? And we are commanded to accept as if it were biblical doctrine that when a scribe sits down to write the Bible, God doesn't help him and the devil doesn't distract him. I mean, this is absurd. That is a ri- ridiculous idea. And how did this get to become the rule of the day? But there we are. So, remember, what we're trying to do is to arrive at a biblical doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, so the devil contradicted it by a different rendering with a view to lead the woman into sin. Brethren... This is important. And you see this kind of thing. And the appeal to the original languages goes on all the time. You know, that Greek word for this and, and that. And so we're going to have women in ministry. And um, sexual issues that used to be clear are now, well, in the original this and blah, blah, and, and all this fancy dancing. Um, you have subtle changes to the text so that we can move people away from the revealed will of God. Isn't that clear? You see it happening all the time. And we're being walked to the edge of the cliff. We're, well, we're sprinting by now. All right. So the devil changed. The woman quoted it loosely, adding to it. Right? So the longer... <laughs> we run a little rabbit trail. Normally, in textual criticism, if you have two renderings, the shorter reading is to be preferred. Right? So, um, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting, and this kind goeth not out but by prayer. Then, this kind goeth not out but by prayer is the authentic, and the longer one, by prayer and fasting, is the the corrupted version. That's a rule. Um, And because the scribe is prone to want to be helpful and to explain... Or he remembered that passage from somewhere else and wrote it out. And so the shorter reading is to be preferred. Well, I don't see that in the scriptures. And we're going to see that clearer when we look at other passages. In fact, um, 
the, the, the longer reading is quite often to be preferred according to the Bible. So, again, they, they make these... Now, they, these, I get it. I get it, right? This is scholarship. This is how they approach any document of antiquity. When, they, when they're looking at the writings of Plato or, or the Greek, uh, was he a poet or a historian or both, Herodotus, you know, when they're looking at the historians, Pliny and Livy and, and all of these... Um, ancient historians, Josephus and Suetonius. This is what they do to, to um, texts of antiquity. But I would suggest that the devil, neither the devil nor the Lord, are nearly as concerned with the writings of Plato as they are with the Holy Scriptures. I think this is just obvious. Um, anyhow, so there we have it. Uh, the devil contradicted it, and what do we learn? God gave his word to his man, expecting him to communicate to his wife. That's inspiration uh, with the approval and expectation of transmission. Now, that's important. So let's reason together. Did God want Eve to know that he had commanded them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Hint, this is not a difficult question. Nathan? Yes. Um, how did God speak to Eve? Yeah, through Adam. That was his will right from the start. So what Eve quoted was the word of God, even though it wasn't in the original form of the original autograph, which, all of which was verbal. Remember how the Lord developed the doctrine of the resurrection from Moses at the burning bush. I'm wanting to learn from the master how to understand his word. Is that reasonable, brethren? Who better to learn from in reading the scriptures than the Lord Jesus? In how to read and understand them. So, the man adapted the original commandment to suit the needs of the next generation. Is that right? And this was done in a pure, sin-free state and was good. Both the original word and the transmitted word were the word of God. Not the pure word and then the good enough word. God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. And he spoke that longer version through the prophet Adam. So the original autograph, what God said to Adam, was inspired. And the transmission, what God spoke through Adam, was inspired. And over a thousand years later, what Moses wrote down was inspired. And I would submit to you that what has been translated and I've read to you in English is inspired. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. <clears throat> the devil... First, subtly changed the emphasis of the word with harmful intent, and the change was not drastic and within and was within the broad frame of the original, but it was dangerous. The devil then directly contradicted the word of God. Again, you can see the thing today, right? Um, so this might, and people say, oh, that's misogynist. Well, no. I've been having a bit of a discussion with a childhood friend on this, and uh, we're in agreement on it. Now, he's an atheist, and... But we're in agreement on this idea of um, 
shaming and, and attacking you. You know, rather than engage the argument, they just say, oh, you're a misogynist. And that means we don't have to address the logic of what you're saying. We can just label you as a bigot and throw you off the bus. We don't even have to bother with the reasonableness. It's a tactic that um, dishonest people use, and it's very common. Uh, no, I'm not a misogynist. I love women so much I married one. I think so highly of women that I decided to make myself completely vulnerable to one for the rest of my life. I remember reading a, an article by David Galerter. He is an Orthodox Jew. I think he's still alive. He was a professor of Yale, at Yale University, deeply religious man. He received an explosive letter in the mail from the Unabomber, but he survived, and he attributed his recovery to the grace of God and his faith in God as a Jewish man. And he wrote an article, um, I believe it was David Galerter, uh, about why women shouldn't be large, should, women should be good keepers at home, essentially. And I just don't understand it, but this did not fly well with all the feminists out there. And um, they wrote back. One feminist lady wrote back, Amy Wax by name. I'm going from memory 20 or more years ago reading this. And she wrote saying in the letters to the editor, you know, it comes two issues later. Do you have any idea how humiliating it is for a woman to be financially dependent on a man for her you know, food and shelter and all of that. And, of course, the, the writer of the article gets the last say, and he replies to the letters, and he, he wrote back, Did Amy Wax never consider how humiliating it is for a man to rely on his wife for an emotionally stable home? Or does that have no value in her economy of things? See? Women have tremendous power in domestic life. And I just, it's embarrassing that such things even need to be stated. And uh, so, far from being a misogynist, I'm thankful to God to be married to a good godly woman. But I'm still going to believe the commandment in Scripture that she's not to be a teacher in the church. An ordained teacher expounding doctrine over the pulpit. Do we all agree with that? Pretty plainly stated. But, you know, in the Greek this and the social and cultural context and this, and what it really means is she mustn't be a yelling preacher. She must speak meekly. I just read that last night, or actually the wee hours of this morning, as part of my uh, rabbit trail research on um, the Asprey situation that I was sharing with earlier. It just, it's not that she can't be a teacher. She just needs to be a meek teacher. She can't be domineering. Of course, right? You have to go to the Greek for that. Etc. Right? So subtly change it and then directly contradict what the Word of God says. And on human sexuality and a whole host of other things. Subtly change it and then contradict it. Uh, the devil directly contradicts the word of God. This moved the woman away from her first faith. Don't eat it, don't touch it. And led to sin. She ate it. Some conclusions. The inspired word of God is dynamic in transmission. Right? Transmission is the copy. It's going from the original 
to what the public gets next or the next generation. It's dynamic. It's alive. It's variable. When I say variable, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a photocopy. Adaptation as needed. And that is done as well with the help and inspiration of God. The inspired word is dynamic in transmission, changing form, but not meaning, yet remaining uh, inspired. God having words added as needed. And subtle changes in meaning and contradictions are often of the devil. So those are some conclusions we get right in the early chapters of Genesis concerning the word of God. Now, we want to remind ourselves that your brother and your sister are not your enemies. Your faithful Christian brother with an NIV or something is not your enemy. Don't abuse him. Don't call her names. Say you're a Bible corrector and you're reading a perversion and all of those things. This is not necessary and it's not loving. Um, Some translations, I think the most charitable thing to assume are the best efforts of very well-intentioned Bible scholars who are trying to help people understand in English and given the growing illiteracy of our generation the um, Jacobean English of our King James Bible being too out of reach for so many of us they're trying to help that's the approach we should be taking with brethren not abusing them Um, so but there are versions that have important subtle things I remember a a faithful Christian brother spirit filled I think he reads NIV or something and I read to him 1 John Chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. We're talking about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And he stared at it, jaw-dropped, and said, I didn't know that verse existed. Because it's not in the NIV, you see. There's a big controversy over it. And then he did what so many of us do, but, but no major doctrines affected by its absence. Well, you don't take the quarterback off a football team and say, well, the team's still just as strong as it was with it I mean come on but it, I mean it's human isn't it nobody likes to kind of have their precious things undermined so I, I get that um, but that's, that's important it's the clearest statement of Father Son and Holy Ghost in all of scripture it would stand entirely alone as a doctrine of the Godhead and it is removed from most modern versions of the Bible in English. Uh, And so you see those kinds of things. They are important. They do weaken the text. But so much as a text aligned with this book, it's the word of God, even if the phrasing is in contemporary English. You'd have to believe that. Otherwise, there could be no word of God in Spanish or something else, right? Um. Modern English is a tongue as much as Middle English or Old English is. It's a tongue. Inspiration. Let's look at this now. How the Lord gave the word and what happened when the originals were destroyed. We're using what is considered orthodox belief in Christianity as a a guide to what to look for in the scripture. Inspiration. 
And only the originals were inspired, is what, right? And I would submit that not only are the originals inspired, but so are copies. Uh, maybe not every copy, but at least some of them. Let's look at Second uh, Peter chapter 1. And verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All right? Holy men of God. This is the prophecy, right? Verse 20. No prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for... The prophecy itself didn't come by the will of man. So you can't just make it up. God inspired the scripture. Let's look at how this worked out in history. Right? Exodus chapter 24. Verse 12. The Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. Okay. So let's remember. Think as the Lord Jesus did. Um, What is going to be given to Moses? These are all easy questions. Good, Good and loud, whoever you are. What's going to be given to Moses? The law and the commandments on stone. Great. For what purpose? These are all easy questions. To teach the people. So they're given to Moses. For whom? The people. And who is the initiator of this mission? God. Okay. They say, well, Martin, like this is so obvious. Yes, I know. But let's think. Remember what we're up against. We're up against the notion that only the original autographs are inspired. So we have to like walk this thing through. So God has said to Moses, come up to me in the mount and I'm going to give you commandments for, to, to, for you to teach to the people. <laughs> Again, basic questions. Does God want the people to get these commandments? Yes. Is God able to get these commandments to the people? All right. If Moses botches it, is God going to say, oh well, the people don't get the commandments? No. God is going to get these commandments to the people. That's the point. All right? Okay. So, so now let's follow the process. Brethren, I hope you can bear with me on this. Because we're up against Christendom, not even the world that has these strange beliefs that are considered orthodox. So God says to Moses, Come up, I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. Is this inspired? This is as inspired as inspired gets. God wrote them down. Not just moved Moses to write them down. God wrote them down. And he said, I'm going to give them to you. Okay. Uh, I think chapter 31 is where we're going next. All right, verse 17. 
And he's finishing up about the, the Sabbath. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested, was refreshed. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. So we've got the inspired word of God, the original autographs, written by God, given to Moses. Okay? Great. Now, Moses... Uh, gets annoyed with the people. He sees, he's coming down from the mount, you know, and the, the, you know these people are all worshiping uh, their idol calves, dancing. Joshua's, I mean, Aaron's got them naked to their shame. <clears throat> Verse 15 of chapter 32. Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, that's Moses, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, as in a war, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I here. And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger waxed hot and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. The original autographs were destroyed before they got to the people. And so God shrugged and said, hope Moses' memory is working. This is what is orthodox Christian belief. Hope he doesn't get too many errors in it. Because inspiration only applies to the original autographs. Do you see how ridiculous the idea is, brethren? It's taught in every seminary across the nation, isn't it? Let's read the Bible, shall we? Chapter 34. Verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. So when the originals are lost, God's going to give, redo the inspiration. These original autographs never even made it to their intended audience. Let alone be corrupted thereafter. But God said, I'm going to take care of this. Verse 27 there. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words. For after the tenor of these words have I made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand. His face was shining. So it would appear that in verse 1, God says, I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first which thou breakest. 
But it looks like the way he did it was to have Moses write them down. Was it less the word of God? Was it not inspired? Was it less inspired? I mean, I realize I'm really hammering hard at this point, but I want us to get it clear. God will look after his word. And if it gets destroyed, if he has to re-inspire the whole thing, then that's what he will do. And we have this example right here. Far from it being lost in spite of the best efforts at men, about the most careless act you could take with the word of God is to deliberately destroy it. Moses smashed him in a fit of rage. He was provoked. He didn't, like, they didn't fall out of his pocket. You know, he's or like a little child coming in. You, you ever seen it? You know, they're coming in. Oops, boom, there goes the cake or the special whatever. All over the place. Or the mom's precious crystal, you know. She, he, he or she wants to be the one to bring in. And she's got her wedding china or something. You know? It wasn't even that. It's like, ah, smash, right? Nobody had even heard one syllable quoted from this. They'd heard something on Mount Sinai. And they said, uh, don't let God talk to us. We'll just take it written. You talk to us, Moses. <sighs> All right. <laughs> so, the originals perished and God replaced them. So when the original autographs are perished, then God, the first time we see it written, he inspired replacements. This is God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I see no basis to believe that he would stop doing that. If the law of Moses, which was temporary in its contract, was so important that God was going to redo it, how much more the gospel of eternal salvation? This is God. I completely reject the Muslim claim that the gospel was lost. And now we needed Muhammad to come and restore it. And all of that. It's no. Not at all. All right. Were these... So the originals perished and God replaced them. Were they identical? See? Well, let's compare. Exodus 20. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Now this is before the tables of stone. Right? So God spake these words from Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 20. Then he calls Moses up in Exodus 24, gives him the stone tablets. Moses smashes them. And then in Exodus um, 32, he calls him up again. And in 34, he gives him a new set. Let's look now. So this came before the tables. Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, which comes after the tablets were distributed. 
verse 6. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. So, that's just two letters. Exodus 23, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 5, 6, thou shalt have none other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Uh, verse 4 of Exodus 20, in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So slightly different. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hurt me, that hate me, I beg your pardon. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And so on. Um, verse 8 of Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Deuteronomy 5. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. All right. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the other one, um, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. So, the second inspiration does not have to be identical to the first for it to be inspired. Right? Slightly different renderings that have an identical meaning and an identical emphasis can both be inspired. Are you, are you agreeing with me? That's the evidence of Scripture. So when you look at two manuscripts and they have a slightly different rendering, they can both be inspired. I'm not saying they are. But it's certainly possible based on this evidence. Now that makes you less acceptable as a scholar in a university. But it is more consistent with the scriptures themselves as, a, as an idea. Than the notion that if there's any variation then you've got to kind of jimmy rig it with your textual criticism. And I'm not dumping it all. I understand God uses the scholars and good conscientious men. I, but I am questioning these assumptions in the light of Scripture. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 36. Interesting narrative. This is a word of God. Uh, and it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. So this is the word of the Lord, word of God. Saying, take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, 
that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. <clears throat> and Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth the words of the Lord in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day. And also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. Notice, all the people got one version. One reader, one copy, one scripture. It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return everyone from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading in the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. And it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people that came from the cities of Judah unto Jerusalem. Then read Baruch in the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe in the higher court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the ears of all the people. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, had heard out of the book all the words of the law, then he went down into the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and, lo, all the princes sat there, even Elishama, the scribe, and Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, and Elnathan, the son of Achbor, and Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Then Micaiah declared unto them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the ears of the people. Therefore all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shalamiah, the son of Cushi unto Baruch, saying, Take in thine hand the roll wherein thou hast read in the ears of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Nerea, took the roll in his hand and came unto them. Okay, let's pause here a moment. You see what's happening? This is the word of the Lord. God told Jeremiah, write down everything I told you. And he did. Now, would we believe that Jeremiah got it right? He's working from memory. I would. He's a prophet. God's speaking to him. God's helping his memory. Now, Jeremiah didn't write them down. Baruch wrote them down. So now we're relying on God to help Baruch to accurately copy down what Jeremiah dictated. I believe that all of these scholars would believe that Baruch, who was not the prophet, was inspired by God to write them down accurately. And if he, as it can be an inspired copyist, technically an emanuensis, why can't the copyist be inspired? Who says? All right? But what you have is God giving the word to Jeremiah, Jeremiah giving it to Baruch, Baruch writing it down, and going around reading it to the people. Right? This is inspiration and transmission. Propagation. Copies not being made yet, except Baruch took the verbal word spoken and wrote it down. So God is sending his word to the people. 
And I can only believe that God got it to the people in exactly the form he wanted it to. Is that reasonable for me to believe that? I think it's the most reasonable. So he speaks to Jeremiah, tells Jeremiah, write down everything I told you. Jeremiah gets Baruch, says, Baruch, take this dictation. I'm stuck here. You're going to go and do this for me. Baruch writes it all down. And Baruch goes around reading these words. So this is God speaking to the people through uh, this reading. And they said unto him, verse 15, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears. Now it came to pass when they had heard all the words, they were afraid, both one and another, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then said the princes unto Baruch, Go, hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where ye be. And they went in to the king, into the court. But they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of the Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king, and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. What you have is the king having the original autograph, which was inspired, read to him. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the earth, the hearth, the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. The original autographs were destroyed. Right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm passionate against this idea that is false. Nevertheless, Enathan and Deliah and Gemariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. But the king commanded Jeramiel, the son of Hamelech, and Sariah, and Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdil, to take Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Now here's the point. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll. And the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. Hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast? Therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat. And in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them. But they hearken not. Then took Jeremiah another roll. And gave it to Baruch the scribe the son of Nereah. Who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah. All the words of the book with Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire. And there were added besides unto them many like words.
so much for only the original autographs being inspired. When they were destroyed, God gave them again. And he added to them. Now that is the record of scripture, which Christ said cannot be broken. This is how God has operated. We've seen it twice now. God looks after his word. And if it, when it is destroyed, he reissues it. And he reserves the right to modify it when he reissues it. As needed. We've seen it with Adam in the transmission. Seen it in, with Moses in the second set of tablets. And we're seeing it here in Jeremiah. I'm detecting a consistent Revelation about how God administers his word. Is that right? They were inspired. Um, The first version and the second version. Many words added. So much for the shorter readings to be preferred. I remember walking in to the staff room when I was a teacher and a a colleague was telling a story. I remember his name, but for purposes here it's not necessary. He was telling a story about an altercation he had with a student in his class. And he hadn't gotten long into it, so he just backed up. He turned to me and said, I'm telling them this. And he told the whole story about what... The student said to him in the class, and he took him to the vice principal's office, and what the vice principal went over with there, and how the student was insulting him, and, you know, telling the vice principal, and he smells, and he's this, and he's that, you know, right there. And he hasn't quite finished, when another teacher comes in and sits down, and, and what's going on? And he goes through the whole story. I listened to him tell it at least three times, and he told it different every single time. And he left out some details this time and, and so on. But I could follow it each time. And I knew the original long version. And, and he left this out this time. And he included it that time. And he rephrased it. But it was all accurate. It's his story. His name was Warren. Now, every time he gave that story, it was the word of Warren. It was the Warren-inspired word of Warren every time. It was true every time. And it was, um, had some details included sometimes and missing other times. It's very similar to the Gospels. I'm just pointing this out. And this is the same guy. We're not talking about an, an accident scene where four different people watching the same thing and this slight. Dis- this is the same man telling the same story back to back. Like there's no passage of time in between except he gets to the end. He doesn't even quite finish. And, finishes it and he goes over it again I listened to it at least three times in the same sitting and lunch hour All right. Um, we're talking about truth Uh, and God speaking to men so I have questions Uh, and we've asked this was Baruch inspired what do you think he would have had to be for it to be the word of God um was Jeremiah inspired again, or are you just the best from memory? Was the second scroll less authentic in any way? 
I want to look at another one, another, another concept here. John chapter 11. See, our faith is in God. The God whom the Bible reveals. John chapter 11 at the end, well, near the end. So, the, uh, verse 47, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that, he, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, let's look at what's going on there. Do you think Caiaphas realized he was prophesying? He most certainly did not. What was Caiaphas saying? Saying, you guys, it's obvious we've got to kill him. Right? This man does many miracles. We leave him alone. Everyone follow him. The Romans will come and mess this up. Take away our nation. Our gig is going to be destroyed. We've got a good situation going here. We've got the temple under wraps. We've got the esteem of the people. You know, you guys get most of the money, but uh, we get all the prestige. Chief rooms at seats, and, uh, chief uh, rooms at feasts and so on. If we leave this Jesus, the Romans are going to come and bust up our gig. And Caiaphas says, you guys don't know anything. Which is better? One guy die or the whole nation? We've got to kill this guy. That's what he was saying. He was leaking out murder. This spake he not of himself, but being high priest, he prophesied through the murderous intent of this evil hypocrite, the Holy Ghost brought forth the word of God. Is Saul also among the prophets? The integrity of the individual is not a barrier for God giving his word. So much for the King James translators weren't all faithful Christian men. Didn't have to be. Being high priest that year, he prophesied. God is not limited to apostles by inspira- for inspiration. And we have that example. God, so here's an observation. God will use even the most evil clergy to speak his word and to transmit it. He will even use men with no knowledge of him to do his will. And you can read Isaiah chapter 45 about Cyrus. I have ordained thee, though thou hast not known me. Raised them up, right? Cyrus. Conclusion, and we'll finish with this. God, who does not change, reissues his word when it gets destroyed. He is not limited to the original autographs. 
If necessary, that's one. Two, if necessary, God modifies his word, whether rephrasing or adding as he deems fit when he reissues it. Three, God uses ordinary people in the inspiration process. There was no concept that the uninspired scribe would make scribal errors. And four, the notion that only the originals are inspired is not biblical, as we shall further see. I think we can end on that. No, we're at quarter after four now, and uh, we've already had enough going over time this morning. You were robbed, brother, so that's fine. Uh, I hope, brethren, that at the very least, this inspires us to careful, thoughtful study of the Scriptures, to see all that God is speaking to us by them. And that we have confidence, not in the, the uh, hopefully um, you know, accurate efforts of men, but in the God that spoke the universe into being, that gave Messiah as a Savior, that rock on which our hope is built, and that he is well able to get his word to us and to keep it. And through it, he speaks to us exactly what he wanted us to hear. And we can have absolute confidence in it, and I have no time, no entertainment for anyone that wants to tell me that this book of God has errors and that this is wrong and that's wrong. I completely dismiss the person as perhaps well-meaning, but ignorant of God, his word, and his ways, however sincere and well-intentioned. And far from trying to undermine their version, I would look for the points where it aligns with these holy scriptures and affirm it for them and tell them you believe the word of God. I want to inspire people to have confidence in God's word not undermine it. God is the most trustworthy being that exists. And we haven't even looked at um, the preaching of Christ and his use of the scriptures. That'll be for next time. Let's uh, be clear.